Great to be with you this morning. Keep your Bible open, would you, to Matthew chapter 5. You're going to want it open this morning as we dig into the first 12 verses that Josh has just sung for us, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Delighted to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. I want to pray before we begin, but before I pray, just say a brief word about the Antioch process that you've already heard about in the service this morning, kicked off two weeks ago. Pastor Johnny did a marvelous follow-up last week. The Antioch process, this year-long season of corporate and individual spiritual discernment that we are kind of launching into as a congregation, and not just a congregation kind of cor- at the corporate level, but individually as well. And I got to say, I've been super encouraged over the last two weeks to receive a, a flood of emails and interactions and conversations about what the Lord through His Spirit is so graciously doing in many of your hearts. It's been really super encouraging. I'm getting emails on a daily basis about how God is stirring you up and inviting you to think deeply and prayerfully about what He has for you in your life. And I uh, had, had a note about someone who's thinking about a job change. I had a note from another, some other folks who are thinking about moving out of the state in light of this Antioch process, and I hope not everybody at Calvary does that, but I was delighted to hear that, that folks are taking this very seriously, not because I said it, because the Spirit is at work in our lives as a congregation. Super, super encouraging. So I hope you're gearing up. You got February 14th, I trust, on your calendar, otherwise known as Valentine's Day, and uh, you'll be there for the launch of this season of prayer and fasting, really spiritual formation as part of this season of discernment, but really, really looking forward to what God is going to do in our life as a congregation and in your lives, each of our lives as congregants here at Calvary should be a marvelous year ahead for us, so very much looking forward to that. Let me pray, and then we will turn our attention to Scripture this morning. Father, we are grateful this morning for grace upon grace upon grace. There's been a steady stream of grace that has been coming our direction since the moment we, before we even opened our eyes this morning, you sustained us through the night. You gave us, you give us life and breath and everything else. There's, there is a kind of unending stream of grace that is coming our direction, that is giving us life and sustaining us and gathering us here. There is a grace in being able to gather as the body of Christ. There is great grace in being able to lift up our voices freely together in song and adoration and worship and praise of you. There is a great grace in being able to open your word. Revelation of yourself to us. We don't want to take any of this for granted, Father. Forgive us when we do and we pause this morning and thank you for grace upon grace upon grace. And we ask that through your Spirit, you would have sovereign sway over the words that come out of my mouth, the thoughts, my heart and mind, the thoughts in the hearts and minds of all that are gathered that are hearing this, that your Spirit would hold sway, and that by your Spirit you would weave gospel truth into our lives this morning, strengthening us to be more faithful followers of Jesus, more in love with Christ and more overwhelmed with the grace and the mercy that we find in Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. 
Well, we have for a number of weeks now, and we will continue for not only a number of weeks, but a number of months to be in Matthew's gospel, the first of the four gospels, the opening gospel of the New Testament. And this morning, we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, perhaps the beginning of the most famous, perhaps the most famous passage in the Bible, certainly Jesus' most famous teaching in the Bible, his most famous sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It is not just Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Look in your Bible. It's actually a steady, uh, a, a whole chunk of Scripture. It's chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 is all this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount, one sustained teaching of Jesus here at the front of Matthew's gospel. You'll be interested to know it's not the only teaching of Jesus, big chunk of teaching we have from Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. There are actually five major teachings of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. This happens to be the first one, chapters 5, 6, and 7, but we'll find another one in chapter 10, and then a third in chapter 13, a fourth in chapter 18, and then a fifth, the fifth and final in chapters 23 through 25, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's Gospel. But this, of course, is the first major block of teaching from Jesus. And so it is in many ways the epitome of Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry, the kind of core and essence of what Jesus was about in his teaching and his preaching. So if you've ever wanted to know what it would be like to hear Jesus preach and teach, you need to go no further than to listen to what we're going to see this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. It captures the epitome of Jesus' teaching. What you also need to understand, we need to understand, is that the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, are part of a larger portion of Matthew's gospel that hangs together as a single chunk of Scripture, if you will. And I know that, and I'll show you why you should know that and can know that too, because it is, it is preceded and followed by two bookends in Matthew's gospel that signal to us that these chapters, verses chapters 5, 6, 7, and then 8 and 9, they all hang together as a single unit of Scripture in Matthew's gospel. We know that because of these two bookends in chapter 4 and in chapter 9. So look with me at verse 23 of chapter 4, and you can see what I'm talking about. Matthew gives a summary of Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry and healing ministry as a lead-in to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first book in chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, but I'll just read to you verse 23, and you can see the summarizing statement Matthew gives it. Verse 23, chapter 4, and he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then turn with me now to chapter 9, verse 35, and you can see the other bookend that brings this whole chunk of teaching in Matthew's gospel to a close. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, he repeats basically the same thing he said in chapter 4. Look there, verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. See what Matthew's doing with these two bookends. He's telling us that everything that comes in chapters 5 through 9 is about essentially three things. 
three aspects to Jesus' ministry that he summarizes in those two verses I read for us. Jesus' healing ministry, his teaching ministry, and his preaching ministry. So over the next number of weeks, as we look at chapters 5 through 9, we're going to see these three themes, teaching, preaching, and healing. Chapters 8 and 9, if you look there, you'll see are all about Jesus' healing ministry, chapters 8 and 9. Look there, eight, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, immediately, right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets busy cleansing a leper, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Then he goes on like that, heals the centurion's servant in verses 5 through 13 of chapter 8, heals Peter's mother-in-law and many others, verses 14 through 17. Heals two men with demons in verses 28 through 34 of chapter 4. Heals a paralytic at the beginning of chapter 9. Two blind men in chapter 9 and a man who is mute also in chapter 9. Obviously, chapters 8 and 9 all about the healing ministry of Jesus. Which leaves chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, all about the teaching ministry of Jesus. And that's just what you find. Look there with me, chapter 5, verse 1, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It's exactly what Matthew says. Notice how he describes the scene, seeing, quote, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, that is a place of revelation in the ancient world, like Mount Sinai. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, so too Jesus goes up on the mountain. That's not just geographical throwaway language, that's a place of revelation. God's will is going to be revealed to His people. Jesus goes up the mountain, and when He sat down, right, in the ancient world, Teaching, authoritative teaching happened by the teacher sitting down and the students standing. I wonder what that would be like some Sunday if I tried that for preaching. Have you all stand and me sit on a stool or something? Anyways, this is what Jesus does. He sits down and you see what happens. His disciples come to him, right? His disciples come to him. And notice how Matthew sort of says something totally redundant to emphasize the significance of what is about ready to happen. And he opened his mouth right? A a redundancy, an unnecessary redundancy. And he opens his mouth to signify the significance of this and taught them saying, obviously this is about the teaching ministry of Jesus. But what I want you to also understand, listen, this sometimes gets lost in the shuffle, is that the Sermon on the Mount, and make a mental note, kind of theologically very important, is not the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, 7, is not just about the teaching ministry of Jesus. He's not just here being a Jewish rabbi giving a lecture on how to live the Christian life. He's also operating as a prophet and a herald of the reign and the rule of God. What am I saying? I'm saying the Sermon on the Mount is both teaching and preaching. Both how to honor God, teaching, and you might say why to honor God, preaching. Or what we should do, teaching, and what God has done in and through Jesus, the preaching. And so let me encourage you, just right out here at the start of this message, to dial in over these next couple of weeks as we dive into the teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus and spend a number of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Set your alarm on Sunday morning, maybe set a second alarm, get up early, get here, perhaps even invite a friend and come eager and anticipating getting to know Jesus in his teaching, his preaching, and even his healing ministry over these next couple of weeks as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this most famous sermon of Jesus's, it begins with what is probably the most famous introduction to any sermon. You see it there in those nine statements, each beginning with the same, look in your Bible, same English word, English translated word, the word blessed, we call them beatitudes. Comes from the Latin word in the Vulgate translation, beatus, meaning blessed or happy. That's how we know this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. It's a bit unfortunate, I should say, though. A bit unfortunate we call them Beatitudes. I say that for a simple reason. Because, check it out, the Beatitudes aren't blessings. It's not what the word translated blessed means in the original language. It's a perfectly good word for blessing or blessed in Greek, eulogetos, right? But it's not the word used here. That word is used lots of places in the New Testament. But here you have the word makarios in Greek. Come back to what it means in just a minute. But it doesn't mean blessed, like God is blessing you. It's not what it means. Besides, it doesn't make sense of what Jesus is doing here at the introduction of a Sermon on the Mount with these Seeming blessings, that we translate blessed. Let me say this also, it's even less helpful to view these beatitudes as commands, as is often done. Sometimes people view them as blessings, other times people view them as commands. So rather than reading blessed are the poor in spirit, you, you read that as, or you interpret that or preach that as meaning be poor in spirit. You want God's blessing, be poor in spirit. Or if you're poor in spirit, then you can get into the kingdom of heaven, like Jesus is setting up some entrance requirements into the kingdom of heaven. It's a new form of law. Do this and you will live. So that what starts out is looking like pretty encouraging stuff because it's got that blessed word, and you're like, well, this is going to be pretty encouraging. Then all of a sudden, you look at it, and you view it, and you hear it, and you maybe hear it preached and taught, and you come away with a pretty heavy burden because these are all interpreted as being commands. It's not what Jesus is doing here. There's a third unhelpful way people sometimes read the Beatitudes, and it's a setting forth a Christian ideal, something to strive for. It's often the way, check it out, that people will read the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, chapters 5 through 7, and folks that read the Sermon on the Mount as setting forth the ideal standard of Christian living, they often will fixate on a very key verse for Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's there in chapter 5, verse 48, perhaps look there, where Jesus says, in a kind of summary fashion, you therefore must be, the word is translated in English, I don't think helpfully, we'll talk about that in two weeks, you therefore must be perfect with the impression that it means flawless as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so they read the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, check it out, as setting forth some kind of Christian ideal or standard, ideal standard that we're to strive for and that only the conceited super spiritual really have done. 
And the rest of us are feeling pretty lousy by measuring our lives up against the Sermon on the Mount and thus the Beatitudes as well. But listen very carefully this morning to me. This you do not want to miss. These nine sayings in the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes, these are not blessings. They're not commands. They're not ideals. It's not what Jesus is doing here. And so a little good news right here at the start of the message, actually, on this, on the Beatitudes, this message on the Beatitudes, the good news is this, you shouldn't leave here this morning resolved to try harder to be a better Christian and live these Beatitudes better. And I wouldn't want you to leave this morning with guilty feelings that you're not quite hitting the mark and reaching the standard of perfection as the Beatitudes lay it out. And I certainly wouldn't want you leaving here this morning wondering if God's not blessing your life because you're not meek enough or not pure in heart enough. That's not what these Beatitudes are doing. They're not blessings. They're not commands. They're not ideals. So what are they then? What are they? They are, in a word, descriptions. That's what they are. Jesus is describing what it looks like to be his disciple. That's what he's doing. He's describing what it looks like to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's describing what it looks like to respond to his invitation to follow me. He's describing what it looks like to, yes, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's describing what it looks like to have your righteousness even exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. He's describing what it looks like to enter by the narrow gate. He's describing what it looks like to build your house on the rock rather than on the sand. In a word, you know what Jesus is doing? He's describing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's describing what we would call a Christian. By the way, there's been a lot of talk in the news media and in Christian subculture as well about what it means to be an evangelical, right? And we even have our own Pastor Joey teaching a class on what it means to be an evangelical. This is what it means to be an evangelical. And what a difference it would make if this was the definition and reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so you see what Jesus is doing right here at the start of his Sermon on the Mount? He's painting a picture. In fact, you might even say he's casting vision for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he captures this this vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus with one word. It is the word that is translated blessed nine times in this passage, but I would capture it and translate it differently. I would use this one word. The vision he's casting is this, this one word, flourishing. 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 From the Greek word makarios. It's what it means in its original context. It means thriving, blossoming, living well, and doing well. It's used nine times at the beginning of each of these statements, and it's best captured by the idea of flourishing. 
And so what are these Beatitudes? They're a picture of flourishing. That's what they are. The world's greatest preacher begins the world's greatest sermon with a vision of flourishing. Don't you love that? Something everybody is ultimately interested in. Every society, every culture, every religion, everyone, everywhere is ultimately interested in this question, what is the good life? What does it mean to flourish in this world? That's what Jesus is giving us here in these Beatitudes, a picture of flourishing. Remember, Jesus didn't come to earth to be a cosmic killjoy, to crush the human spirit to invite you to evaporate into nothingness and to take some poison but smile as though it's actually all great. No, as Jesus says, John 10.10, quote, the thief, that is the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. What does abundant life look like according to Jesus? This is our description, these nine sayings, what we call these Beatitudes, perhaps better to call them the flourishings, not the Beatitudes, but the flourishings. Flourishing are, Jesus says, the poor in spirit. Flourishing, thriving, blossoming are those who mourn, getting after the good life, flourishing are the meek. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Flourishing are the merciful. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Flourishing are even those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Flourishing are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus is giving us here a picture of flourishing. Just this week, I, uh, perhaps you caught this in the news, I came across a little article written up in CNN at, uh, about a new class that is being offered at one of America's most prestigious universities. The university is Yale University, and the class is Psychology 157, which goes by the title, Psychology and the Good Life. Psychology and Makarios. It was offered a registration, opened evidently on January 12th, and immediately 300 people signed up. Three days later, there were over 600 people signed up. A few days after that, there were over 1,000 people signed up, 1,200 total, the most popular class in the history of the university, Yale University. They had to move the class to a big concert hall, of course, to handle all the issues. But what a Vivid picture of the spirit of the age, psychology and the good life. The age-old question of what is the good life? I find it so interesting that you've got all these 18 to 22-year-olds at Yale University who you would have thought already thought they had the good life. They're at Yale University for crying out loud, and there they are packed into this lecture hall to find out how to get and achieve and attain the good life. And yet I wonder, I haven't seen the syllabi or syllabus for the class or heard any of the lectures, but I wonder if what's being taught is going to sound anything like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. His picture of flourishing here in these Beatitudes. 
I mean, it is a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? It's not the way we tend to think about flourishing. You'd have a bunch of furrowed brows with the Yale undergrads if you said, you will get the good life if you are dependent, big time dependent and poor in spirit. Or if you mourn, or if you're meek, or if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's a way to the good life. That'd be some furrowed brows, I would imagine, with the undergrads. We don't tend to think of thriving and being poor in spirit as going together. We definitely don't tend to think of the good life connected with being persecuted and reviled. And so what's going on here? Some cynical joke on Jesus' part? It was Frederick Nietzsche who said that Christianity is nothing other than slave morality peddled as actually being good for you when it's poisonous for you. Because it crushes the human spirit, it doesn't actually promote human flourishing. How can Jesus call this kind of stuff flourishing when it doesn't look like flourishing at all? Doesn't sound like flourishing? I bet it doesn't even smell like flourishing. How can he call this flourishing? flourishing. How can he call this vision the good life? He calls it flourishing for a simple reason. Because for Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom defines reality. And it defines then human flourishing. This is flourishing, you might say, kingdom style, Jesus style. This is flourishing in light of the good news that God is bringing His reign and His rule into this world. Counterintuitive flourishing, but not so counterintuitive when you see it in light of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, this is the essence of what Jesus taught. Take a look with me at chapter 4, verse 17. You see, this is a summary of his preaching. What did Jesus preach about? He preached about the kingdom of heaven. You see it there, verse 17. You see it also in verse 23, where he goes around teaching in their synagogues and, as we've already read earlier, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But what is this gospel or this good news of the kingdom? It's two things. First, it is the promise of the kingdom, and second, it is the presence of the kingdom. It is the promise of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is coming. That's why Jesus preached, repent, verse 17 of chapter 4. Why? Because the reign and rule of God is imminent, it is coming, it is at hand, it will dawn on the earth. It is a promised future reality coming to earth. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the way Jesus preached. That's why he taught us to pray the way he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, thy kingdom come. This promised future reality come to earth. Notice, will you, how each one of these nine Beatitudes, look at the Beatitudes, notice how they come in two parts. The blessed part at the front, better translated flourishing, I think, and then the second part, which begins with the little word for, which could also be translated because. The flourishing 
Because, is what Jesus is saying here. The first part, the description of flourishing, which is counterintuitive, yes. The second part, beginning with the four, the because is the reason, the rationale for the first part. It's grounding the the flourishing in the reality of the kingdom of God. So you see it very clearly in verse 3. You see it very clearly also in verse 10. You see it very clearly in the first and the eighth of these Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for or because they, or excuse me, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is coming and it shall be theirs. He repeats the same reason in verse 10. Look there as well. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What a counterintuitive thing for Jesus to say about human flourishing, but not so counterintuitive when you see the second part, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Changes everything if you believe that one day God is going to establish his reign and his rule on this earth. It changes everything everything. It even changes how you define human flourishing in this life in light of the promise of the kingdom of heaven to come. And yet notice Jesus isn't thinking merely about the future coming of the kingdom. He's also thinking about the present reality of the kingdom. Don't want to miss that. Not just the promise of the kingdom, but the presence of the kingdom. And so flourishing are the poor in spirit, for example, verse 3, flourishing are the poor in spirit, not simply because one day they will enter into the kingdom of heaven in the future, but because the kingdom of heaven is theirs by faith even now in the present. The promise is a present possession to those who have faith. Or as Jesus will put it in the Gospel of Matthew, to those who have faith and follow Jesus, you enter even now into the kingdom of God. You enter into even now in this life the reign and the rule of God in your life. You enter into that and the reign and rule of God enters, you might say, into you as well. And so don't hear these beatitudes, these words of human flourishing that Jesus cast through this vision. Don't hear this as simply pie in the sky, like live a miserable life, but it'll work out in the end when Jesus comes with the kingdom. Don't hear it as pie in the sky. It is a description of reality. Yes, the future reality, but also the reality of the here and now. It is a picture, it is a portrait of those who hear, those who heed the message of Jesus and come to Jesus as disciples even now in this life. Those who hear, those who heed is called to repent. Those who hear, those who heed is called to come, follow me. When that's going on in your life, you're flourishing from Jesus' perspective. Even in this fallen world, you are flourishing because of the good news of the kingdom of God. And so you see these beatitudes, what we call these beatitudes, these aren't blessings. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not pronouncing a blessing, right? 
These aren't commands. He's not saying be this, be this, be this, be this. These aren't ideals. He's not saying strive really hard for this. Leave here feeling guilty because you're not working hard enough at being meek or pure in heart, any of the rest of it. That's not what's going on. Rather, what he's giving us is a powerful description of what it looks like to live the good life, to thrive, to truly prosper, to live well and to do well in this life all because of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. He's giving us a description, a description of flourishing. But not just a description. In the description, you see, is an invitation and a correction perhaps and perhaps an assurance an invitation, a correction, and an assurance, an invitation for some of us in the room this morning, some of you in the room this morning that are in hot pursuit of the good life. You might have been in hot pursuit of the good life your whole life, seeking the secret to the king, its secret to the good life, to a life of flourishing and of thriving. And you've tried lots of ways to get after it, but you've been surprisingly and frustratingly, if you're honest with yourself, it's been surprisingly and frustratingly elusive. Now you might be on that cusp of trying a different approach. Might be why you're here this morning. A different approach, not your approach to human flourishing. You've been trying that for many, many years perhaps, but Jesus' approach to human flourishing, you're, you're on the cusp of trying a different strategy, a different approach. When you're on the cusp like that, thinking about turning away from pursuing your own approach to human flourishing to submitting to and embracing Jesus' vision for human flourishing, the Bible has a word for that, being on the cusp, making that turn. The Bible uses the word, Jesus uses the word repentance. That's what repentance is in the Bible. And so let me encourage you, if that describes you this morning, let me encourage you to take the next step this morning. Even now, respond by faith to Jesus' invitation to come, to follow me. Ask Jesus to take the reins of your life. Ask Jesus to, to take your sin upon himself and offer you forgiveness. Ask Jesus to come into your life and begin guiding your life. If you find yourself on that cusp, take the next step. There is an invitation here in this description of the good life, of the flourishing life. There's an invitation. Receive the invitation. For some of us, though, I think there's also a gentle word of correction in this description of the life that flourishes in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, some of us, I suspect, maybe most, if not all of us, we're not big fans of being poor in spirit, right? or being meek, hungering for much of anything other than, I don't know, our lunch, right? Not big fans of any of that. We prefer strength and confidence and being in control and having solid plans and living life to the full, being self-reliant. Not the stuff that Jesus is talking about in this message. 
And so there may be a gentle word of correction to those of us that, that when we even feel the, the poverty of spirit coming on or the, the meekness coming on, world, the world's circumstances line up in such a way that we feel ourselves sinking into the kinds of descriptions Jesus is talking about here. We want to resist it and get out of it as quick as possible. There may be a gentle word of correction, even loving rebuke, not a word of condemnation, but a word of correction. Jesus, he wants to redefine the way we think about flourishing, the way we experience flourishing. There may also be a word of assurance here for some. For some who are walking in the way of Jesus as a disciple, and yet you are finding this world to be, as Luther put it in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a world with devils filled that threatens to undo us. If you find yourself trying to live, let's say, in a marriage with integrity, you're trying to live your marriage with integrity, and yet it seems to be consistently backfiring on you, or you're finding yourself trying to live with faithfulness and humility at work, but it's not getting you ahead, it's setting you back. Or you're trying, students, young people, to be pure in heart with your peers or bold for Jesus among your classmates, but you're not getting a warm embrace and three cheers for Jesus. Rather, you're getting jeering and mocking and perhaps even marginalization. Then let these nine descriptions of reality wash over your soul this morning. See these as nine lifelines to keep your soul from sinking with discouragement, perhaps even seeing these as nine lifelines to buoy up your soul so you can do what verse 12 describes, to rejoice and to be glad. A word of assurance, I think, in the Beatitudes this morning. You see, what Jesus is doing as he begins his most famous sermon, most famous introduction to his most famous sermon, is he's painting a picture, casting a vision of what a life of flourishing looks like. What it looks like to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow after Jesus. He's painting a picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But do you know what else Jesus is doing when he's doing that, painting a picture of what it means to be a disciple? He's ultimately painting a picture of himself. These nine sayings, you see, are Jesus' own portrait. Because Jesus is poor in spirit, but his is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is one who mourns, but he shall and he has been comforted. Jesus is meek, but he has inherited the earth. Jesus is one who certainly hungers and thirsts for righteousness, but he shall and he has been satisfied. Jesus is merciful. He's incredibly merciful. And he shall receive mercy. He has received mercy when the Father raised him up on the third day. Jesus is certainly pure in heart. And he shall, he has, he does see God even now. Jesus is a peacemaker. Made peace with God for us through his cross. He shall be called, therefore, the Son of God. And Jesus was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He was reviled. People uttered all kinds of evil against him. 
And yet for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Flourishing in the way of Jesus. Flourishing in this fallen world. So Jesus is describing here because the fall of the world is not the final word about the world. The promise and the presence of the kingdom of God, that's the final word about the world. And it holds out hope for us as we give our lives to Christ and pursue flourishing as Jesus describes it here in the Sermon on the Mount. Amen? Father, thank you for not only giving us this beautiful picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this fallen and broken world, but Lord Jesus, thank you for embodying these realities in a way that we can not only read about, but we can, we can almost touch and taste and feel the reality of your life and ministry where we see all of these beatitude, blessing, flourishings at work in your own life that gives us encouragement, gives us hope, it gives us challenge, ultimately points us to the promise and the reality of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, we thank you for living these truths so well and for the grace that you give us through the cross to embrace these realities in our own life. For the sake of your name, because of the kingdom of heaven, we pray this. Amen.